I'm going to begin by reading our uh, passage today from 1 Peter chapter 5. I'm going to read the larger section that we have been uh, sitting on here for a few weeks, and our aim is to focus in on verses 10 and 11. I begin reading now in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now you'll notice that we are in the home stretch here in our study of 1 Peter. We only have a few verses uh, yet remaining. And we have spent quite a bit of time here in verses 6 and following uh, because all of us need a little bit more humility. All of us need a little bit more uh, awareness of the enemy. All of us need a little bit more strategy on how to fight him. And uh, we all need the encouragements that this passage has, I think, been truly a blessing to us. And, And frankly, those are the glamour points in the text. If you're reading through 1 Peter, maybe devotionally, you kind of, those stand out to you, right? Humble yourself before the Lord. The devil's a lion prowling around, seeking who may devour. You're like, okay, I got to note that today. Don't forget that as I go out today. Once you get past verse 9 and you hit verse 10, it's like a shoosh, right? You're like, hey, I'm almost done. Now I'm done, right? And you easily skip over some of these verses. Like, frankly, I have verse 10 and 11 here. I didn't expect to be doing a whole message on this passage, honestly. But as I get into what Peter is saying here, I believe what he is saying in verses 10 and 11 are the anchor to everything else that he has been saying here. These well-known quoted verses. Verse 10 anchors all of them. Now, I I do want to note that there is some... uh, Call it irony, call it humor. There's not a lot of humor in the Bible. So whenever you see a little bit of ironic humor, you sort of have to enjoy it, right? And I think we've got a little bit of that here because Paul says in verse 7 that we are to cast all our anxieties on him knowing that he cares for us. Great, I'm going to take all my anxieties. I'm going to, I'm going to be anxiety-free. And then in verse 8 he says, there's a lion wanting to eat you. <laughs> Okay, now, what exactly is that? Because I don't know that I can be anxiety-free and aware of a lion that is trying to eat me. I uh, had a flight this week. I think there's sometimes, and maybe you have as well, the, the little pre-thing that they do before you fly, you know, where they have the recording playing. And, uh, you know, they go through all of the potential contingencies that might happen on that flight and what you're supposed to do if it does. So they'll say, uh, you know, please buckle up in case something happens where you'll wish that you were wearing a seatbelt. So buckle up the seatbelt. And if we have a water landing, 
your seat is a flotation device. So take a look at it, make sure you know how to pull that out. In the case that oxygen is eliminated from the cabin, masks will fall from the ceiling. Breathe normally, uh, you know. And it's like, I don't think if we're in a spiral <laughs> and there's no oxygen and we might be going into water and I'm trying to pull my seat up and the mask comes down, I don't think I'm breathing normally in a moment like that. It's kind of like what Peter is saying here. Cast all your anxieties on him. He cares for you. There's a lion trying to eat you. Um, I don't see how those two things can simultaneously happen, which I think is why verse 10 again, is the anchor. How can I live in a world where there are swirling circumstances that are beyond my control? How can I live in a world where things happen like we saw in the news this week? And how can I live in a world, my own world, where I got all the dramas of my own life happening and I can give my anxieties and my fears to God? How can those simultaneously happen. Verse 10 tells us how we can go through suffering, go through trials, and do so without them overwhelming us. So again, verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And after you have suffered a little while, he says, this is a theme in Peter. He talks about trials, he talks about sufferings, perhaps more than any other uh, letter in the Bible, but he talks about them in terms of their fleeting nature. They are temporary. He says this in verse, chapter 1, verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So a little while. Now how can Paul or Peter, how can Peter say that our trials are temporary or they are here for a little while? What happens, what happens when you're having a great time? We always say things like, wow, the time has flown. You're on vacation. Everything's awesome. You're like, man, these days are just... When things are going great, time goes like this. What happens when things go bad? What happens when... How fast does time go in the waiting room at the hospital? Drags on forever, doesn't it? It's like, man, this is lasting... This is, or in our trial, we'll think, this is going to this is going to be part of my life forever. This is just, oh my, you know, we get that sense. And Peter here says, Christian, you got to realize that that trial, no matter what it is, it's only there for a little while. Now, how could Peter say that? Because there are some trials that last most of our life. You might have something that has happened in your life that you are going to live with and deal with for the rest of your life. And so you look at that trial and you say, Peter, you don't know what you're talking about. That is not a trial for a little while. Here's why Peter can say that, because Scripture calls us to view life redemptively from the perspective of redemptive history, from the perspective of the big picture of what God is doing. 
Our lives, James says, are like vapor. They are here and then they're gone. Now the good news is that means that the trials that we have in this life are also like vapor. They are here and then they are gone. When compared to the big thing that God is doing, the scope of redemption, specifically when you think about eternity, once we get into eternity, all the things that we went through in this life, good or bad, all of them will seem to us to have been so very short. Our lives would be, will be so short and that pain that I went through with that situation that I was involved in, that suffering that I had, man, I look at that now and it, lo- it's, it just seems like it is so small when compared to the grand scheme of what, of what God has for us in the future. So we've got to look at these things redemptively and from the perspective of eternity. Paul calls trials in the Christian's life light and momentary, 2 Corinthians 4.17. Friends, we live forever. We live forever. And that means that thing in your life will someday seem so small when we see Christ, as the song lyric goes. So look at the trial through the perspective of redemption. And by comparison, it's going to be here just for a little while. Okay? Well, thank you, Peter, very much. When I get to heaven, I'll make sure to look at the trial that I'm in right now from that perspective. But right now, I'm not in heaven. I'm not in eternity. It's not tomorrow. It's today. Do you have anything that can help me for now? Okay? Now is when I need my help. And this is what Peter has to say for us so helpfully here in verse 10. Peter urges us to view the trials in our life from the perspective of the sovereign grace of God. That we are to derive hope from his sovereign, powerful grace. Again, verse 10, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now, at first glance, it's not there anymore. At first glance, you may not realize that we are really on the edge of a mystery here, okay? We're on the edge of a mystery. Because whenever you look at admonitions in Scripture that call us to look at life and trials, salvation, from the perspective of what God does, it always creates this tension with what, what then what's my responsibility, okay? The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Loads of books been written on this, lots of struggles in understanding this. It's a mystery, but it's important to know the mystery because if you grabbed all of the exhortations that we have had in this letter, like, don't live like the pagan world, uh, crave the milk of, the, of God's word, respect those in authority over us, win unbelievers to Christ by the example of our life, and many other things. If you just pulled all of those exhortations about what we're supposed to do out and focused on those, guess what happens? All of your hope is derived from your performance and your obedience to those exhortations. You have to derive 
hope in your trial from how well you are doing with those things. And what do we know about our doing of those things? Always it is imperfect, human, flawed. You try to do that very long, you end up being a legalist where all of my hope is built upon how well I perform in these things. And God steps into that, that's the man's responsibility, into that uh, tension is the sovereignty of God. That there is a God who has certain qualities and characteristics and has done something himself. Spurgeon was asked, how do you reconcile these two, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? He said, I don't have to reconcile friends. It's a good quote. So, I note the mystery. I can't explain it. But I want you to see why it's important to realize the tension of the mystery so that we understand that while we have responsibility to these things that Peter has called us to, that the foundation of our hope is not us, and it can't be us. It is God himself. And this is how, especially in the times of suffering, again, when life is awesome and everything's great, I don't mind maybe looking at my performance and saying, you know what, I'm doing pretty good, I'm a pretty good person. It's when life is hard and when I have failed or there are things that I can't control, when all of a sudden my need to lean into God becomes even more evident. I remember that moment, I'll never forget, when Madeline was at her worst two months ago, and she, I just, I looked at her, and her eyes were rolling back and forth crazy, and I just thought to myself, I have, I, I can't do anything. You ever have a moment, a moment like that in your life? Could be your job, could be something else, when you realize, I am not in control. And that's what Peter now into that gap, that control gap, steps the only one who's really in control, and that is God. That is God. Notice what Peter says. The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Peter points us to the sovereignty of God, the sovereign grace and his call on our life. And he says that we are to rest in the fact that God is the one who is doing the saving. Again, the God of all grace. The grace of God is God's goodness, his favor, which he gives to us freely. We do not merit it or it wouldn't be grace. He gives it to us freely. He is the God of of all grace. There is no limit to the grace of God. He can give grace to somebody else, and it doesn't mean he doesn't have just as much to give to me. We don't need to be jealous of the grace of God in other people's life. It is an infinite grace that God has. He is the God of all grace. Who has called you? The calling of God is God's summons to our hearts to believe. Okay? The call of God. Lots of it in Scripture. Romans talks about it a lot. And the point of the call of God is that salvation begins with God. It is not me rationalizing, having feelings, warm towards God, that all of a sudden is the initiating moment of salvation. 
that God is the one who starts it. He is the one that does the calling. He called us from eternity past to believe. So salvation is a God thing, okay? It's a God thing. And the grace of God ensures that it can only be a God thing and that we cannot take any credit for our salvation whatsoever. But I want you to see here the calling that he's talking about. He doesn't say that God called you to initially believe, which he did, but that's not what Peter says. He doesn't say God has called you to suffer, which he has. What does he say? He has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. That is not the calling that summoned me to believe. That is a calling to the end of salvation, the future grace of God. Now you're all looking at me like I'm not quite getting it, okay? It's one thing to say God called, think of a, think of a race, okay? Lots of people can show up for like a half marathon or something, right? They can have the number, they can have the shorts, they can have brand new running shoes. But how do you know who the runners are? Starting line? Or the finish line. You go to the finish line, right? You know who the runners are by who finishes the race. And the calling of God is, yes, we are called to believe that initiating work of God in our life. But what Peter is saying is not that we're called to show up at the starting line. He says God is guaranteeing that we're going to make it to the finish line. Okay? We're going to make it to the finish line. It is the future grace of God. Which, you know, when if, and I've, I've only run a couple races, but I imagine this to always be true, especially for the uh, weekend warrior runners like some of us. Uh, when do you need a guarantee that you're going to finish the race? Like if you interview people at the beginning of a, of a 10K or something like that, say, hey, do you think that you're going to finish the race? All of them think they're going to finish the race. When do they, but, but it's like halfway somewhere? When they're like, this is longer than I thought it was. You know, the person that only ever ran a mile but decides to run the half marathon. When do they need encouragement that they are going to make it to the finish line? It is, it is in the middle of the race. It is when I am struggling that a word that comes to me and says, hey, by the way, the God that called you to the starting line is guaranteeing you're going to make it to the finish line. All of a sudden, you're like, hey, I thought I was going to die, but apparently I'm not. I am going to make it to the finish line. God who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Here's what Jesus said. Let not your hearts be troubled. There's a good word. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I told you, have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So God's effectual call begins our experience of salvation, places the grace of God upon us when we believe. But the call of God is also to that future 
state that every genuine believer who begins that race by faith at the beginning is going to make it to the end. Now, again, it's not because the runner can be like, I've worked out, I've done so many amazing things, I've got great stamina and endurance, look at me, I'm making it to the end. Because in the Christian life, we all come to the end of ourselves, don't we? God brings things into our life and we realize, I can't save myself. I don't know that I can go on another day in this. It's a God thing, friends. If I trust in my performance, if I believe in me, I will in the end discover that I am not sufficient. But it is when I am suffering and in trials that the grace of God comes to me and sustains me and ultimately completes my salvation. Now, there's another marvelous truth in this little phrase here. Notice, we are called to his eternal glory in Christ. What is that finish line like? Or on the other side of the finish line. Called to his eternal glory in Christ. Now, this is the second time in this chapter Peter has talked about this. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. He says this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. A partaker in the glory. So what is it exactly that we are called to? What are we being guaranteed towards or to? Peter says here that it is glory. But it's not just glory. It is that we partake in the glory. Now imagine if God had said here, I will, I will sustain you so that someday, like Moses, you will be able to see my glory. That'd be awesome, wouldn't it? If God said, hey, I guarantee that someday you're going to get to see my glory, we'd be like, oh man, we'd run, we'd think that's so encouraging. Fantastic, I get to see his glory. Or what if God would say, I'll sustain you and you get to be near my glory, like Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, you get to be near it. We'd be like, that sounds fantastic. You mean I get to be near your glory? I get to be in proximity to your glory? What a motivation that would be for us. But notice what Peter is saying, that we are called and given the privilege of actually partaking in the glory of God and not, not just for a moment, like Moses, as God passed by and showed him his glory, or like Peter, James, and John, who had that moment on the mountain where they saw the glory of Jesus as it was unveiled. It is not a momentary proximity to the glory of God. It is not a momentary seeing of the glory of God. We are called to partake in the glory of God forever. Okay? Forever. So, listen, listen to Romans 8. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. What is that like? What does it mean to be glorified with Jesus or to partake in the glory, as he says in 5.1? I'm going to illustrate it this way. Many of you know our Crown Point campus is a uh, host venue for the Northwest Indiana Symphony. So they do like three or five 
performances here every year, and we're happy to do it, and um, it's a nice relationship. So several years ago, they um, uh, called me, and they asked, or emailed me, I can't remember what they did, but they asked me if I would be willing to narrate with the symphony um, Peter and the Wolf. Now, I said yes without really even knowing what Peter and the Wolf was, okay? I was like, wow, Symphony wants me to narrate something. I'm in. I'm so in with that. But uh, come to find out, Peter and the Wolf is, I think it's a Russian kind of children's sympathy, uh, sympathy, symphony, where uh, there's like narration and there's animals and different instruments play to sound like the particular animal, and there's a story. And so um, I'm like, hey, that sounds, that sounds really, really great. So what an experience that, uh, that was. And the thing that I remember about, about that, in fact, it was right here in, this, in our auditorium, okay? So the only way I got the gig is I happened to be the pastor of the church that hosts the thing. It wasn't my radio voice. It wasn't anything else. It was just, let's have him do it. So um, it was right here, okay? And what I remember about this uh, mostly is that if you've ever been to symphony here, the way they kind of arrange it, they kind of bump out the stage a little bit on the sides. And so this is like the violin section in, on, on the stage, like this area here. And this is like the cello and the sort of the big string things are here. And they got the brass and um, percussion and all that's all. They jam them all in here. It's, a lot, it's amazing how many people they get on the stage for those things. So I come to the... Uh, concert, and the re- we had a rehearsal as well, and I discover that to be the narrator at that concert, I, I think I sat on a stool about right here. Okay. First violin was right there. All the violins were all around me. Okay. All the wind instruments and all that were right here. It was amazing. They should sell seats up on, around here. They really should. Because I'm here to tell you, now you go to the symphony concert, they're very, very good, beautiful music. It's great to go, to, it's great to, to hear a symphony, right? It's great to be in proximity to the symphony. You know how much these tickets are at the sympathy, uh, the sympathy symphony? The, these empty seats we have right here in the front. Do you know how much people pay to sit right here at the symphony? I think they're like $65, these being available for free here on Sunday. <laughs> Why do people pay more to be closer? Because it's, it's awesome to be near the music. But it's nothing like being in the midst of it. And I can tell you that from experience. And what Peter is saying here is that as great as it would be for us to be like Moses and to see the glory of God, or to be like Peter, James, and John and to be in uh, near or proximity to the glory of God, what lies ahead for us is a partaking in the glory of God where we are in the midst of it. We are we are part of it. It is, we're not seeing it from afar. We're not, you know, we're there. We're like, we're in it. It surrounds us. It doesn't mean that we're God any more than I was first chair. 
violin by sitting where I did. In fact, it was a privilege to sit where I sat. They called me. Would you like to sit on the stage at the symphony and to do the narration? Well, yes, I think I would. And what flowed from that came by the kindness of the symphony. And someday we, we're on the stage. We are in that glory in a way that we don't even begin to understand now. And Peter puts that before the people suffering and going through trials and says, God is guaranteeing you are on the stage. That glory will be yours. And let that encourage you as you struggle with your trial. But we still haven't really answered the question of how does God, how does God keep us in his grace? How does God keep the redeemed redeemed? How does he keep the saved saved? Especially when God's people are struggling with something. How does he do it? And again, back to verse 10. Here's how he does it. God will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Four action verbs there. Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish now, friend, when do we need each of these things in our life? Is it when life's awesome and I'm awesome? Do I need restoration when my spiritual life is just, I'm on the mountaintop and this is great? No. In fact, notice how each of these correlate perfectly with what a Christian who is struggling needs in that moment. When do I need to be restored? When I've fallen. When do I need to be confirmed when doubts are crowding into my heart? When do I need to be strengthened? I need to be strengthened when I am weak. When do I need to be established? I need to be established when I feel my faith and my hope slipping away. And do you see how per God perfectly brings to his people exactly what they need when trials and sufferings are doing all of those things in our hearts. Here comes the grace of God to that Christian in the midst of the trial in order to gird them up, to encourage them, to keep them in the race. That's how God keeps us saved. And he promises that he will do it. Always. Always. So anyone here fall this week? Anyone here fall? God will restore you. Anybody here in doubt this week? Wondering if God's going to come through? Wondering if this whole thing is true? God can and will confirm your faith. Are you, anybody weak here? God will strengthen you. Anybody have hope slipping away? God will reestablish your faith again and again and again. Now I can maybe imagine somebody sitting here looking at that going, 
That just sounds like spiritual gobbledygook. Anybody can say anything. How, why should we think that that's true? Who is the person that's writing this? Peter. What do we know about Peter's story? He's like the all-time biggest, arguably the greatest failure in the history of the church is what Peter did to Jesus, denying him three times and running away in his time of greatest need. This is Peter. Peter, the one who ran away and wept bitterly. This is Peter who failed Jesus when he needed him the most. In fact, we know that that happened on Thursday night, right? The Passion Week of Jesus, Thursday night. Peter denied Jesus three times. He doesn't show up in the story again until Sunday in the upper room. Imagine with me the thoughts that Peter would have had between Thursday night and Sunday. Imagine his shame and despair thinking things like this. Oh, Jesus will never forgive me. Jesus will never want me around him again. Jesus will never use me ever again. Jesus has given up on me. That was the dark night of Peter's soul. And if you know the story, what happens? Jesus shows up in the upper room and then later fixes a little breakfast by the Sea of Galilee for the disciples. John tells the story of how Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. He does it three times, right? Three times. Now, is that just an imaginary number, just circumstantially, three t- happened to be three times that Jesus did that? How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times, right? Three failures, three restorations. And Peter writes out of that experience, now as the great apostle Peter, the rock, looking back on that moment of failure and trial and suffering in his life, and he intends to encourage us today. Listen, the grace that I'm talking about, people, is grace that Jesus himself gave to me. This is the way that he rolls. This is the kind of savior that he is. So I don't know, friend, how maybe far you fell this week. We got a lot of people here in the service. I'll bet we got some pretty big, pretty big fails here. You came to church, you're sort of embarrassed to be here. Wondering, I don't know that God will ever forgive me for this. If you repent, he will. And he'll use you again. That's the grace of God. The last thing that he says here, again, it's so short, it's so small, it's like so easily to sort of skip over. But look at verse 11. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Dominion means power. Dominion means authority. To him be the dominion sounds like Peter's almost praying, hoping that maybe all the power will go to him. But in reality, be can be translated is, to him is the dominion. Or as one 
Translation says, dominion belongs to him. And what Peter is assuring us here is that there is no uncertainty regarding whether or not the God that he is talking about can accomplish what he is saying here. Why? Because he is the sovereign ruler of the world. The God that we're talking about here is the God who has infinite power and infinite resources. He has everything that the church needs. He has everything that people that are suffering, like in France or in Indianapolis or the Rainer family, needs. God has what we need. And if he meets the need there, it doesn't mean he's lacking power to meet the need over here. Why? Because he is infinitely powerful and glorious. So there is no uncertainty about this, okay? This is not up for chance. We're not hoping he wins. Yes, there is a lion that is prowling around. Yes, there is a lion that wants to devour us. Yes, he is the enemy of God, but he is not God. Our anxiety's real. Our fears and struggles and wonderings real. They seem overwhelming, don't they, at times? And we think, man, I'm always going to feel this way, and I can't overcome this, and God can't help me. This is so powerful in my life. Yes, it is powerful, but those feelings are not God. The forces that are set against us are powerful. You think about all the things that are going on in this world, and all the treachery, and all of the uh, evil and all of the hate and all of the murder and you think about our culture western culture and hollywood and politics and all these things they are they are so powerful but you combine all of their power and all of their evil and all of that and they're not equal to god so that we can say the world and society is powerful and the president is powerful and the congress is powerful and isis is powerful but you take all of their power it's not god there is only one god and he is the most high god and all power is his so that for the exiled christian suffering all kinds of things that we do the hope that we have is not in my performance or my obedience to these exhortations. Our hope is greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And we rest in, then, the power of God and trust and confidence in his ability to do what he's promised that he will do in my life and in the world and in the future. And that's what Scripture calls us to over and over again. And this is what Christian songs call us to. Listen to the lyrics of this. This is my father's world. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. A mighty fortress is our God. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. 
Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.